Welcome to, this is actually the second lecture in the library's lecture series. Um, as, as you probably know, it's also sponsored by the Buckeye Book community. Um, let's see, our speaker today is Dr. Richard Herman, who is the director of the Mershon Center for International Security Studies. And he's also the Social and Behavioral Sciences Distinguished Professor. Uh, he focuses on international relations and political psychology, uh, particularly regarding the Middle East and Russia. And he's going to talk today about Afghanistan and Pakistan. So, everybody give him your attention. Thank you. I'm going to try to get some. It's nice to be here. Thank you very much. Okay. All wired. Can you hear me all right? All right. I'm going to talk about Afghanistan. As soon as this computer warms up, I want to put a few maps up. I may move out to the middle because I can't see people behind the podium. Oh, okay. How do you do it? Okay. Let me just um, open a file just for a second. Thing opens when I just load it onto the screen, okay? Yeah, when it opens. Okay, thank you. Uh, well, it's nice to be here. I'm glad to be able to participate in the series on three cups of tea in Afghanistan. It's an area of the world I watched for a long time, not usually this electronically, but I'll try. I want to really uh, talk about three things, but before I started, I wanted, if this will open, to show you uh, some data on American opinions about Afghanistan because clearly it's a part of the world that when I was in college, Americans didn't pay attention to at all and wasn't perceived as strategically important. And now it's, you know, as you know, one of the biggest decisions the president's facing. And I thought over the weekend I'd just get some data together for this talk. And I wanted to show you what a difficult decision this is going to be for President Obama that he faces. I suppose most of you saw yesterday uh, that the candidate who was competing with the current president of Afghanistan uh, has decided to withdraw from the second round of elections after about a month of wrangling over whether or not the election that was held was legitimate or fraudulent and whether he had won or not won. And finally, it was concluded that he had not won and he hadn't uh, achieved 50%. So they're supposed to have a second election uh, this coming week. And then the candidate who had finished second would be the only real competitor to Hamid Karzai, decided yesterday to not bother to run, arguing that he thought the next round would be as fraudulent as the previous one. And the Obama administration has been waiting now for the better part of a month to try to figure out what to do next until this presidential issue was worked out. They don't really want to throw the country deeply behind a president who they don't see as legitimate and who may have or may not have won this election. But now, uh, tonight, I'm sure they're wrestling with what do we do there's not going to be a second round, or even if there is, there's not going to be an alternative candidate to the president that they've got, which uh, they don't think has much support from uh, large portions of the population. But this is a different issue that the president faces, our president, the United States, which is what Americans feel about Afghanistan and which way he should go. So I thought I'd start by why this is an important topic. And it's partly because 
when you ask what are Americans more concerned about, that we're going to invest a lot of lives in the war in Afghanistan and waste them, or we're not going to do enough to stabilize Afghanistan and protect ourselves from another terror attack, the country's about split in half in terms of what they think the bigger risk is. And there's not a lot of people in the center. And if you ask a different question, um, would you favor sending in more forces? And I'm going to talk for a little while this afternoon about what that might constitute, what that would look like, or get out of Afghanistan and focus on other things uh, important to Americans. You can see about 40% say, yeah, we'll support the president if he decides to escalate. But a majority, a fairly large majority, nearly 60% say no. Uh, they don't. And among those, uh, you know, more than a quarter, well, practically, you know, 50% say not just don't escalate, but get out and come home. And maybe not as fast as we'll come out of Iraq, but don't go into this any deeper. So no matter which way uh, President Obama goes, he's going to have plenty of critics on the other side. I just have one more of the other of these. And... The public also seems very pessimistic. While about 40% want to stay, the great majority don't think we're ever going to win or prevail. So it's not at all clear what they think we're going to accomplish if we do stay in Afghanistan, whether we escalate or not. And the last, I think, slide I wanted to show you is that there's also a deep division on whether we do, if we do withdraw, whether that'd be dangerous for us. And again, the country's about split in half, that if we withdraw from Afghanistan with the threat of terrorism against the United States, go up. And the dominant reason that's given by those who want to escalate into Afghanistan, people like Richard Holbrook, who we'll talk about a little bit, he's the special advisor to the Secretary of State and to the President on Pakistan and Afghan affairs, His view is the main reason we need to stay in Afghanistan is what we'll call the safe haven argument. That if we leave, it'll be a safe haven for al-Qaeda and other terror groups, and they'll organize their attacks uh, again. And I suppose that's on the minds of people who say, if we leave, the threat to us will increase. It seems, though, that the majority of Americans are kind of reconciled to the notion that we, we should leave but staying there is necessary to protect ourselves from terrorism. So what I infer from this is that, not surprisingly, the public has views they're not all that certain about. A majority say they want us to come out, but about the same majority says if we do come out, or that it's necessary to stay there to protect ourselves from further attack. And then once you get beyond that cleavage, it starts to break down almost 50-50. And I'm I'm fairly confident that the public doesn't have really strong opinions on this one way or the other, and that's what these kind of contradictory results are showing us. And the degree they do, they're deeply divided. And I suspect, and maybe that's what we can talk about some this afternoon, they're not terribly knowledgeable about what's going on in Afghanistan. In fact, I sense for the last 25 years or so that I've been watching this that the discussion today is maybe as thin as it's ever been partly because it was never a public discussion much before. What to do in Afghanistan in the 80s was mostly among experts who were studying the Soviet Union and either PAC or Afghan affairs, 
It didn't involve the general public. It was the largest CIA operation going since Vietnam. We were pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into the Mujahideen. But it, and, and most Americans may have known about it, may not have known about it, but they weren't part of the discussion about whether to do it or not. And it, none of them understood what was going on in Afghanistan. They didn't need to. It was portrayed for them in very simple terms as an anti-Soviet, anti-communist support of uh, resistance fighters. And I think you can see it uh, in the context of movies. I don't know if any of you saw Charlie Wilson's War that starred Tom Hanks and Amy Adams and uh, Julia Roberts. I, maybe it wasn't for young kids. But anyway, it's about our involvement in the 80s. And it's a very romanticized picture, both of, Senate, of Congressman Wilson, but also the mindset of just the Cold War. We needed to back Pakistan to keep Russians out of uh, Afghanistan. And then there were a whole slew of movies that captured popular culture. Rambo, for example, had one where Rambo goes to Afghanistan and it's you know, an utterly, utterly romantic view of both the Mujahideen at the time. It was all portrayed as good guys and bad guys, with us, of course, the good guys against the Russian bad guys, and the Russians were really bad guys, and anyone who was fighting them in Afghanistan in alliance with us was perceived as the good guys, and that's about as far as it went in terms of our analysis of this. So what I'd like to start with is to try to give you a little better, or a little bigger, a broader strategic perspective on why did we get into Afghanistan? The United States did not go there just after 9-11. That's when we invaded the country and overthrew the Taliban, but that's hardly when our major involvement began. And one of the problems we face now, that's never been the driving motivation behind why Pakistan's involved. And so I'm going to start, and I'm going to spend a few minutes trying to explain why you can't separate Pakistan and Afghanistan easily, and that Pakistan's interest has never been the same as ours here. It's not now. It's not likely to become that. And that because we don't focus on that, we, I mean, we do at the elite, but not the popular level, our understanding of the problem we face here is really not what it needs to be to make any kind of sensible decisions. After I've done that and given you, I hope, a little sense of what the regional dynamics of this is, which we didn't look at much before, other than, in, as I say, this sort of Mickey Mouse, anti-Soviets uh, were good guys and pro-Soviets were bad guys of the 80s, I want to talk about the problems that the government in Afghanistan faces today and some of the things uh, that would explain why when Greg Mortensen goes there and he's trying to uh, develop schools, some of those schools get attacked. And who are the people attacking them? And why do they attack them? And what's the likelihood that we're going to be able to stop them from attacking them? And so on and so forth. And talk about that in a little more regional context rather than just the context of they're against us, therefore they're bad. And finally, I thought I'd come back to the choices that are in front of the United States at this point in terms of whether we go in more. And if we do go in, the president also is debating over how to do it. There's a big fight within the military at a tactical level. If you're going to escalate, then what is the mission you're going to give to the troops? It changed a few years ago in Iraq, and I want to mention that and talk about it in the context of Afghanistan. And one of the men who was in charge of the change of strategy in Iraq is now in charge, of course, uh, indirectly of the war in Afghanistan, and that's David Petraeus. And through him, one of his right-hand lieutenants, Stanley McChrystal, who's now the commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan, but who really has spent a lot of the recent past in Iraq as head of special operations forces there. And he brings with him to Afghanistan, as does General Petraeus, a lot of the lessons they think they learned 
uh, in Iraq, which may or may not be very transportable to Afghanistan, uh, given the context I'm about to lay out, because it's a very different context uh, than Iraq. So that's what I want to do. And I hoped I could do this in maybe 20 or 30 minutes, and then we can have conversation, because I'm sure you'll get tired of listening to me. And like any professor, I can drone on uh, forever. Uh, but you can't listen that long. And I want to hear more of what you have to say, frankly. I think this is a great opportunity for me to hear and talk to students about something really important rather than just hear myself talk. Okay, so let me give you a little bit of background. Um, I want to just show you a map, just in case when you read Three Cups of Tea, and I know you've been to other ones of these talks, so I'm certain that South Asia is becoming as familiar to you as Central Ohio is, and you all know where everything is, but just in case, because sometimes Americans are not great on geography. You know, we're talking about this country here, and the point I want to make uh, to start is that Pakistan considers Afghanistan really important to it, particularly in contests over territories up in here, and with its primary rival, which is India. So I want, to, I want to make sure everybody's aware of where Pakistan comes from. It comes from the division of the British Raj. So this is the way the world looked uh, at the end of the Second World War out in this region. There wasn't Pakistan, and frankly, there wasn't India as it's currently constituted. There was Afghanistan. Now, the border between Afghanistan and the British Raj was never all that clearly defined, and it's still controversial. This Duran line was never agreed upon by everybody. All right? So this border between what's now Pakistan and Afghanistan has been in dispute for a long time, and it wasn't drawn by Pakistanis or by Afghans or Indians. It was drawn by the British as the boundaries of their empire, the Raj, which extended way east into what you know now as Bangladesh, and all through India, and all through what you know is Pakistan. And in the 40s, the dominant way of dealing with religious and ethnic difference was segregation. And not only in the United States, everywhere else. And so when the British Empire decided to leave the Raj and exit South Asia, the strategy for managing the differences within was religious segregation and the creation of two states, one that would be organized around Islam for the Muslims and one that would be organized around a multi-confessional group but would have a vast majority of Hindu. Now, you all know, I've heard the name of Gandhi. Gandhi was the one pushing for the construction of India, and he did not want to see an independent Pakistan. He didn't believe in the idea of segregation along religious lines. There were Muslim leaders who did, who thought that there'd be a small Islamic, well, not small, actually in absolute numbers, a gigantic 100 million plus Muslim minority within India. Now, there still is, actually, as it turns out. But that as such a minority in this large Hindu state, they wouldn't have the kind of control over their lives they wanted. So they wanted their own country for Muslims. And that became Pakistan. Just, and we're not going to talk about it today, but a very similar strategy was true in the Middle East. That's why there was Israel and Palestine. State for Arabs, state for Jews. The idea was you manage ethnic difference by giving people their own state. It was the dominant thinking of the first half of the 20th century. Woodrow Wilson talked about it in his notion of self-determination for peoples and the construction of states out of former empires. I, may, I want to give you some background on this because it's not the mindset today. 
Today, the mindset is multiculturalism, integration, holding states together like we're trying to do in Bosnia, but that wasn't what went on here. And in Afghanistan, I mean, in Pakistan, one last, well, not one last, the next step of this, there were two regions that were very heavily majority uh, Muslim. So when the British left, they created a Muslim state called Pakistan, but it was separated by more than a thousand miles of Hindu India. And that's the way it was when I was in college. So not that long ago. I don't feel that old. And uh, this was in my adult lifetime that Bangladesh, when I was in college, became an independent country. It's like Darfur today for some of you. If you've been watching Darfur, it's a very big public issue. There's a lot of student rallying around Darfur. A few years ago, I helped students on the campus get the Ohio State University to divest our investment holdings in Sudan as a protest to the uh, killing in Darfur. Well, when I was in college, the issue was Bangladesh. George Harrison of the Beatles organized big conferences, uh, I mean, concerts all over the world to raise money for the Bengalis, who were basically East Pakistanis of Bengali descent who wanted to secede from Pakistan and have their own country, partly because they thought the dominant group in West Pakistan, who I'm going to call Punjabi, and I'll show you a map in a minute, were not treating them well. And even though they were all Muslims, the Punjabi and the Bengali were very different ethnically, different languages, lots of different cultural differences. And the Punjabi insisted on ruling in Pakistan, and they still do, by the way, to this day. And they ruled the military establishment in Pakistan. And they wanted to rule over East and West Pakistan. In any case, eventually, the group in East Pakistan won the overall elections in the country and would have become the government of West Pakistan, too, at which point the army of West Pakistan said, never, no way, and civil war broke out. India intervened and helped East Pakistan to become Bangladesh. Between India and Pakistan? Yeah, where, where would that be? That would be along here. It's one of the most heavily fortified borders left in the world. When you move out, when you're out here in Calcutta, um, the, the Pakistani issue is a lot less central to these people. They're Bengali. They don't feel the same way these Punjabis do. India, remember, you don't remember, I haven't showed you the map yet. Let me show you one more map. I think it'll get clearer. This is the ethnic distribution of what became Pakistan then, the West Pakistan part. Bangladesh in 1971 becomes separated, its own country, and it happened in about a two-week war. India intervenes and helps the group of Bengalis who wanted their independence win it through a military intervention. And Pakistan's defeated because Pakistan's a country today of about 176 million people. India's well over a billion. If these two get into a tangle... India will usually win. It's a much more powerful state. But this group are Punjabi. They rule, for the most part, in Pakistan. They also rule, traditionally, in India. And as you can see, here's the, here is the Punjab is actually in India. And many of these Punjabis... Uh, who control the Pakistani army 
were convinced that India was going to try to separate Pakistan again. After it took Bangladesh away, this is in the Pakistani mind, now it would want to separate it again by carving off the other big ethnic group that was not Punjabi, it was Pashtun. So if it could segregate and carve off the Bengalis, maybe it could carve off the Pashtun, which constitute about a quarter of Pakistan and about 50% of Afghanistan. And I told you earlier, this Duran line, this line between what used to be India and is now Afghanistan, was never one that was agreed upon very much. It's the Duran line. And it cut in half, well, not quite in half, but it cut a third of the Pashtun people out of Afghanistan and put them into Pakistan, which is ruled by the Punjabi. So in 1974 and 5 and 6, the Pakistanis came up with a strategy to hold the Pashtun territories inside Pakistan voluntarily. They said, look, the glue that holds us together is Islam. The whole reason Pakistan was created was a country for Islam and for Muslims. It's to unite us across these linguistic and ethnic differences, and what holds us together is we're all Muslims. So what we do is promote Islam as the glue of Pakistan, and we downplay ethnic difference to the degree we could. To hold on to the Pashtun territories. They started this in the late 70s. In 19, at the very close of the 1970s, the Soviet Union invades Afghanistan. For reasons we could talk about in the discussions, I don't have time to go into right now. Once it gets invaded by what is portrayed as a communist force, it was a communist force, it's not just portrayed that way, the Muslim world rallies against atheistic communism with the help of the United States and its most conservative Islamic ally, Saudi Arabia. And it's mana from heaven for Pakistan because it can argue that all Muslims everywhere should rally together to stop atheist communism from sitting on the Afghan brothers and stop the Indians, if they're trying to play games, with Pashtun nationalists And India at the time, of course, was friendly and close to the Soviet Union in the Cold War, much more so than with the United States. And so Pakistan mobilizes itself to support this Islamic holy war against atheistic communism. The United States is loving this. We're helping it. I mentioned earlier it's the biggest CIA operation since Vietnam. It's gigantic. It's giving an opportunity for us to fight the Soviets indirectly. Ronald Reagan becomes president and escalates it dramatically. And for those who had a picture of the Cold War and the world as us against them, this was the hottest battlefield that we could play in and fight in, and we could deliver a blow to the Soviet Union. And the way we would do it is by backing uh, Islamic groups, some of the more conservative coming out of Saudi Arabia, who we helped transport to Pakistan. And then the Pakistan intelligence services, who since the early 70s had been cultivating relationships among the Pashtun on Muslim grounds, already had networks into, into Afghanistan to put our weapons and later on Stinger missiles. And they cultivated the group of the most Islamic-oriented imaginable, who would be, of course, the most ferocious fighters. Now, we used to call them the Mujahideen. And there were 
13, 15 different factions, maybe more. A lot of it had tribal divisions. Even within the Pushtun, there are different kinds of Gilzai. There are different tribes within the Pushtun. But the idea here was to never mind about Pushtun, Muslim, Islam. The Cold War ended in the early 90s. We leave. We've lost interest in the situation. We, our aid dries up. These people who were Mujahideen, like Gobadin Hekmetyar, aligned themselves with Ayatollah Khomeini, the Islamic fundamentalists who'd taken over in Iran. And all of a sudden, in American mindsets, these guys are transformed from freedom fighters that Rambo's out working with to uh, possible terrorists and allies of Iran and who knows what. But nothing changed in Pakistan's side. Pakistan wanted Islam from the beginning to be the glue. As we withdrew and the Russians had gone out after 19, February of 1989, the Pakistanis, I mean, the Afghans themselves started fighting. They'd been fighting, of course, throughout all of this. Pakistan is convinced that India is playing games again with Pushtun nationalism, trying to stoke up Pushtun nationalism to get a secessionist movement going. And eventually what Pakistan does, not so eventually, in the middle 1990s, is arm strongly now one particular faction of religious conservatives among Muslims. Some of the factions they had been supporting with our help all through the 80s, who were the best of the fighters, and you know them as the Taliban. And they armed them so the Taliban could both establish control over the warring groups within Afghanistan and would do so in the name of Islam, almost all of whom were Pushtun, and as Pushtun Islamists would say, Islam is more important to me than my Pushtunism. I'm not interested in separating and aligning with India or playing games as an Indian agent of any kind. And I'm going to get after those Pushtuns who will. And I'm going to impose order and security on the rest, of course, with a very conservative understanding of what Islam's all about. And I'm going to impose from sort of a middle and lower middle class understanding of Islam, the social norms of the rural portions of Afghanistan. And Afghanistan still is only about 25% urban, so and the rural areas are very poor. Afghanistan's infant mortality rate is still the third highest in the world. It's over 150 deaths per thousand births. It's startling. So this is a country where you can combine you know, enormous social conservatism with religious conservatism. The Pakistanis do it through the Taliban, and they're doing it to block India from playing games. And the Taliban is basically their ally, very closely aside, still is, with Pakistan. 1998 comes, and Pakistan explodes an atom bomb, just after India had. Well, then American relations with Pakistan, which were already deteriorating rapidly, ever since the end of the Cold War, and these guys started aligning so strongly with Islamic fundamentalist groups, just went right down to zero. There's legislation in the United States that kicked in. Senator Glenn was actually the one, it's the Glenn Amendment, as it's called, which forbids us to give military assistance and many other forms of assistance to a country that has withdrawn from the non-proliferation treaty and exploded a nuclear bomb. So when Pakistan did that, the guillotine just came down on U.S. aid policies. So that was 1998, and it is frigid in U.S.-Pakistani relations. And the Pakistanis are arming Taliban, 
and Taliban's doing its thing, and frankly, most Americans don't care. It's far away, it's poor, it's the Cold War is done, and they're focused on many other things. Um, even trivial things like Monica Lewinsky seem much, much more important than anything that's going on over here. Until 9-11. And on 9-11, of course, it comes back and people say the Al-Qaeda was in Afghanistan and that it's still there. And we tell the Taliban, either you give them up or we're going to consider you with them. They won't give them up. So we decide to bring down the Taliban. We invade the country and we overthrow the Taliban. And the president of Pakistan goes on national television and says, our country has no choice. Either we stick with the United States on this one or they're coming after us next. And while this is going to be extremely hard for us to do because of the last 15, 20, 30 years of cultivating the relationship with these people, we're going to have to turn our backs on them. I don't think, and I don't think very American Americans who watch this think that he ever really did. He was a military general. What happened in Pakistan is the army and the Islamic conservatives allied forces because they recruit kids from the same places. They're recruiting 17 and 18 year old boys from the same villages and they're either going to win the army or they're going to go into the Taliban or the equivalent of it uh, and, or Islamic groups within Pakistan. And in, unlike many Arab countries in Pakistan, religious conservatism and the army are hand in glove. Was then, is now. And so for them to tell us, well, we're against the Taliban now, I don't think anyone, well, not anyone who knew much in Washington believed it. It was obviously political convenience to keep themselves out of our gun sites and so we wouldn't come after them. And it stayed that way until about two years ago or three with a very uneasy relationship where they pretended to go after the Taliban and we pretended to think they were. And we focused on Iraq. But here we are in 2009, and the Taliban is reconstituted itself. How could that be possible? And it's reconstituted itself more powerfully in Pakistan than in Afghanistan. How could that be possible? Well, I mean, how could it not be possible? Pakistan was never really willing party to any of what we were saying. It was never against this Taliban. It never shared our perspective on any of this. It's thought from the beginning that it has to be working against Pashtun nationalism to worry about India once again trying to separate parts of Pakistan and divide the country. And it has other groups. The Sindhi. You may have heard of Benazir Bhutto. She went back recently and was murdered uh, when she was reinstalled as prime minister of the country. She's a Sindhi. And her base of power is in Sindh. And there are Baluch. So these Punjabi leaders, they understand fully well that if this country starts coming apart on ethnic grounds, it could come all the way apart. And the leading edge of that would be up here. Okay. What I want you to take away from that, and we can talk about in a minute, is that it's hard to persuade the Pakistani government to give up the Taliban. Much of the Taliban is Pushtun. Much of the Taliban support in Afghanistan rested on the Pushtun, who are about 50% of Afghanistan. When we decided the Taliban had to go, we weren't going to send a big army to Afghanistan to do it. We sent the big army to Iraq. What we did in Afghanistan was different. 
We sent in CIA people. You can read books and see some films about this. We sent in CIA people. We brought plenty of them to Mershon. Literally, and I mean literally, they have pictures of themselves with suitcases full of money. And they went to tribal leaders in the north, which is mostly populated by about 25% of the population is what they call Tajiks, a different ethnicity. And there was something called the Northern Alliance, led by Tajiks. One of them, a, a guy named Shah Maksud, was particularly important. And he had been assassinated by people around Osama bin Laden. So we played to the Northern Alliance. We took literally suitcases of money and trainers in, trained them in some things of how to fight militarily, linked up some of our reconnaissance equipment so we could call in air cover to help them in attacks and battles, explained to them how to fight for a few months, and then invaded Kabul with them. Not with our army, with the army of the Northern Alliance, who were more than happy to go after Pushtuns, because they're Tajiks. Now, currently today, nearly all the security apparatus and most of the forces in Afghanistan are Tajik-dominated. Chief of Staff of the military, most of the key military police organizations are Tajik-dominated as a result of how it was the Taliban collapsed. Now, the president of the country, Hamid Karzai, is Pushtun. He's one, we found a Pushtun face for the new government, understanding the politics of Afghanistan a little bit. We knew he had to be Pushtun. So Hamid Karzai is Pushtun, but he's a Pushtun who will play with the Tajiks and create a military establishment all around him that's almost entirely Tajik, who had been, Hamid Karzai had been closely associated with CIA in the 80s. He was somebody we knew, we had good connections with, had worked with us before, and he became president, still is. And he served his terms, and he didn't want to leave. And he had an election a couple, well, two months ago or so. Says he won that election. Uh, the international observers say massive fraud, so much fraud that they threw out millions of ballots and said it had to be a re-election to try again. And then yesterday, the second finisher said, what's the point? It's not going to be any better this time than last time. Let's not go through it. Plenty of Taliban now, again, mostly Pushtun, have targeted Karzai. They killed his father in 99. Uh, he has his own history with Taliban himself, had been an early supporter, then turned against them. Then they killed his family. And then he turned against them even more and allied with us against Taliban. He's not very popular, it turns out, at least not with the groups that are supporting the Taliban. He's not all that popular, I suspect, with plenty of the Punjabi elite running the inner services directorate in Pakistan. So there is, in a nutshell, I guess, some of the dynamics of this that I hope I got across somewhat clearly. It's not really all that complicated. I'm hoping this map makes it somewhat clearer to you. And maybe I need to show you one more, which is the population of Afghanistan. It's mostly Pushtun with a big hunk of Tajiks. Yeah? How is Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban related? Okay. Okay. In the 80s, when we were fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan, uh, a number of our conservative allies, as I said, wanted to fight atheistic communism. And one in particular, Saudi Arabia, wanted to export some of the more zealot young people who, uh, in, in Saudi Arabia, a very conservative brand of Sunni Islam is practiced called Wahhabism. Think Christian fundamentalism of the Oral Roberts type if you want. 
And so the government of Saudi Arabia had some problem childs that it would keen to export and let them fight the atheists rather than the Saudi Arabians. So we helped arrange lift and transport and moved a bunch of Arabs into Pakistan and then from Pakistan into Afghanistan to carry on the war against the Soviet Union. Those Arabs were people like Osama bin Laden and their predecessors. And so for most of the 80s, we were supporting them and we were helping them help the Afghans fight against the Soviets. They went there for religious evangelical reasons to spread Wahhabism. They weren't all that popular among many Afghans or Pakistanis, uh, but they were there just the same as, as basically missionaries and as warriors. Those guys morphed in that 90s period I'm describing, after we got out, into Al-Qaeda. It, they declared war on the West in 96, and it was an alliance between Saudi Arabian Arabs and Egyptian Arabs, who for different reasons were angry with their government. Both their governments are very closely tied to us, Saudi Arabia and Egypt. And there had been terror operations against their governments and against their government uh, officials in 90, early 90s, both in Egypt, where they were attacking not just their government, but also foreign tourists, and in Saudi Arabia. Those governments were anxious to export those problem players to someplace else, and they ex- exported them to, to Pakistan and on into Afghanistan. And they changed their strategy. For most of the 80s and 90s, they said, we're going to fight the near enemy. We're going to try to overthrow the government of Saudi Arabia and try to overthrow the government of Egypt right after we overthrow the government of the Russian atheists. First, we're going to get the Russian atheists. Once they got the Russian atheists and they feel they won in Afghanistan, then they came home and turned on their own governments. It was at that point that their governments pushed them out, either to Somalia or Sudan or back to here. And that's al-Qaeda. That's where it comes from. In 96, they change strategy and say, we're, we're attacking local people, what we call the near enemy. But when we attack this Egyptian minister or this uh, whatever, we're killing a bunch of Egyptians who were standing by near, near because they were doing car bombs and stuff. And that was alienating the Egyptian population from them. So they decided to have a strategic shift and start to fight what they call the far enemy, us. Because if they kill us, it wins popular support across everybody, and they don't have to worry about killing, like in Egypt when they killed one of the ministers, they blew up a whole bunch of little schoolgirls who happened to be walking by at the same time. And since their strategy is to win over the support of people in the region, you know, they decided to be much more politically expedient to attack America than to attack their own. So that's how we got into it. They attacked us. They declared war on us in 96. They attacked our embassies in 98, and they attacked us again the Egyptian first group attacked us in 93 when they tried to blow up the World Trade Center but failed. Then in 96, 98, and 2001 were just a series of more attacks on us. And you know the story, I suppose, after, nine, after 2001. We had this history with them when we had been supporting them, but that had ended in the late 80s, early 90s, and now they had declared war on us, and they were attacking our people, attacking us in New York and in Washington. So after that, it was, we're going to go get them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Argument, should mm-hmm. I say. And I'm just wondering why we're not employing you know, the same strategy. Well, not the same strategy, but you know, Taliban fighters are trying to win support of their people so that they can have control of them. Why isn't the United States really focused on winning support of the Afghan people so they will be you know, less likely to 
Okay, let's jump to that. That was going to be my third point, but I think I've talked enough. So let me just start responding to what you're most interested in. The choices in front of the president are not just to escalate or not escalate. It's to escalate in how, all right? So in Iraq, the way we were fighting initially was to go after people who were part of the Saddam Hussein regime or people who we thought were part of uh, the Al-Qaeda Iraq and kill them in direct action. That meant we would send our forces out on patrol, sometimes in day, sometimes at night. They'd come in, they'd try to find people who were either Al-Qaeda Iraq or Saddam holdouts and kill them or arrest them. Try to persuade people in the neighborhood to tell them who these people were and hand them over, or if not, then arrest the whole group until somebody did tell us who they were. It wasn't working. We were hurting lots of people. We were arresting lots of people. We weren't getting very far. And one of the reasons we weren't getting very far is something we had learned early on in Vietnam. When you send an American patrol into a village, and and they're in Anbar province or someplace, which is Sunni dominated, and they say, tell us who the bad guys are here, or we'll beat you up. And there's some 24-year-old American captain screaming in their face with guns all around them and tell them, you know, what's going on here and shaking them or whatever. People don't help. They don't like to help people like that. And then even if they do help, at night those troops go back into their barracks inside of Baghdad someplace and around come Al-Qaeda Iraq and the Saddam holdouts and murder their children, murder their wife, maybe murder them, for having collaborated with the enemy. And so local populations have a way of dealing with traitors. They kill them. They kill their children. And so no one's going to cooperate with you if you can't protect their families and protect their kids and their wives. Not just for the 30 minutes you're in there screaming in their face, but for the whole next day, the next week, the next month. That means you've got to put American troops out into that village every day, all day long, 24 hours a day. They have to be on patrol. And you have to arm people in the local village because there aren't enough American kids willing to go over there to do this. It takes massively more troops to carry on the strategy that we call the surge, which is this notion of counterinsurgency warfare, where you don't try to go find and kill the enemy. That's not the purpose of the strategy. The purpose of the strategy is to go out there and protect local populations and get local populations feeling that if they cooperate with you, you'll protect them. And with your arms, they can protect themselves. So in the last three years in Iraq, we've enlisted the help of over 100,000 former insurgents who are fighting us. We found an easy way to get Sunni young boys to stop fighting us. Go to the tribal leaders who are leading them and say, here's $200,000. Here's $4 million. We'll provide all the arms you could ever want. But what you've got to do is ally yourselves with us to stop Al-Qaeda Iraq. And if the Shia come around here to terrorize you, We'll load up the arms for you. Not commander-in-chief, combatant commander for Central Command, all the forces there, said basically what we've done, we call them, we used to call them the anti-Iraqi forces. Now we call them the sons of Iraq. We flipped them overnight. I don't know whether we flipped them or we just flipped them in our heads. They went from one column, main bad guys, to the other column, main good guys. And one of the problems we face in Iraq right now is they're all heavily armed and they're not being integrated back into the Iraqi government and we're exiting, and they're able to protect themselves, and none of the political issues have been resolved. But we did reduce the violence because they stopped fighting us, 
and they were able to protect themselves against any other people coming in the village. And so we've leave, we're leaving that situation. Now you come to Afghanistan. General McChrystal is talking about doing the same thing in Afghanistan. One of the reasons that people won't cooperate with us out in these Pushtun areas, particularly in the south, which is largely under Taliban control now, is we can't protect them. The Taliban is much more influential than we are because we can come in, we cruise in with eight or ten or patrol of even 20 kids. They're there for a couple hours and leave. Taliban live there. And they'll get you. You you can be sure of that. And so unless we're prepared to put an awful lot of forces in here, we could try to bring in Tajiks, but they're only a quarter of the population and the Pushtuns aren't going to put up with that. The security establishment of Afghanistan is already very heavily Tajik, and that's one of Karzai's big problems in terms of trying to win over the majority population support. We've put about 160,000 U.S. troops into Iraq at our maximum. That's a population of about 18 million. Afghanistan is much bigger. It's a much bigger land mass, about twice the size of Iraq. It has closer to 30 million people than 18. Last census was not very good, but we're, we're estimating, CIA is estimating about 28 or 29 million. And it's a much more rugged terrain. And we have fewer than 40,000 forces there. We're going to escalate if we do, maybe all the way up to in the high 60s, maybe even 70,000. In combination with the 30,000 NATO forces that are there, we might get up to a little over 100,000 forces in a country much more rugged, much larger in population, much bigger in land space, and to try to protect the population. So General McChrystal is saying, if this is what you want us to do, protect the population using the normal strategy of counterinsurgency warfare, which is to win them over as our allies, then you've got to put in a whole lot more troops. And one of the things that's been holding the president up is it's fundamental, this whole idea of winning over their support, where they see us as their ally, protecting them and helping them develop their country, is they have to also believe the government of their country that we're stabilizing is legitimate and reflects them. And when Karzai ran this election that turned out, at least looked like it was so fraudulent, a lot of people in Washington started to think, this is hopeless, right? Because central to the whole counterinsurgency strategy is not just protecting them, it's protecting them so they can rally around a government and feel that that government is beginning to represent them and empower them. But if they hate the government and they don't think the government reflects anything about them, then how are we going to be successful with the strategy, even if you put in 200,000 troops? Uh, and so they're back and forth with this. The alternative position, which is being uh, at least verbally floated out there by Vice President Biden, uh, pretty, pretty openly too, is that since Karzai is not very popular and doesn't seem to have legitimacy, and I haven't heard what the Vice President will say this week, well, now that we're not going to have a second round of election, or if we do, it won't amount to much. His view is you can't do counterinsurgency in Afghanistan the way we tried in Iraq. What we need to do here is go after the enemy and try to defeat them, largely using drone, uh, flying drones, and bomb them, and keep as few of our kids in the way as necessary, keep most of our troops back out of this, has as small a footprint, as they call it, as possible in the country, and 
we're not going to be able to stabilize Iraq and make it into a functioning democracy because of the nature of the current president and the government. And therefore, what we need to do is sort of lower our sights and say the main thing we need to do is to keep al-Qaeda off balance and on the run so they can't attack us. And that's what's in it as far as Americans are concerned. And fixing Afghanistan, that might just be a bridge too far given our own economic problems and our own reality about how many Americans are prepared to sign up to go and fight in Afghanistan. I saw a hand over there. Yeah. But are there tangible targets? I mean, the difficulty of fighting a, like, a non-state actor like Al-Qaeda is that you don't necessarily have someone with them. And, like, you know, so this is where civilians, like, get in the way and you start, like, having these casualties. So, like, with this plane, does he have specific areas? Like, does he, does, like, do they, the government have areas they know that will, like, that will be effective if they, like, strike there? Or is it just... Our intelligence is not terrific. That's been, you're pointing to one big problem that we've been trying to identify individuals. So we've killed quite a few individuals. The problem, as you mentioned, is that in killing them, we've killed lots of other people too because we get a word that they're going to be in a particular place at a particular time. And so we attack that place and there are 45 other people there having a wedding celebration or who knows what. And, you know, the Taliban has been, they're fighting us. It's hard to say you're cheating and not playing by the rules. I mean, there are no rules, and they're protecting themselves by embedding themselves in the population and making it hard for us to get a clean shot at them without also hurting lots of other people. And our information's always not, not always that good. So we're hitting a lot of people that, you know, we're aiming, and they're not there. They were there 20 minutes ago, but they're not there now. And the people who are there now don't have much to do with this. Uh, it's their sister and her husband and four kids. And it infuriates people. The other thing we're doing that's making people very angry is that we've decided that this part of southern Afghanistan is probably very difficult for us to move into because of the nature of the Taliban control down there. And we're thinking that where Al-Qaeda is probably headquarters is over here anyway in Pakistan. So at the end of the Bush administration and now continuing in the Obama administration, we're not bombing only in Afghanistan. We're bombing in Pakistan. And we've, we've pushed the Pakistani government very hard to attack what they call the Pakistan Taliban here in Waziristan in these areas. And that fight's been going on for about three weeks now, maybe not quite, maybe two weeks, I lose track, as we've sort of nudged and pushed and pressured the Pakistani army to attack their own Taliban and try to establish control, because this area called the Northwest Frontier or the Frontier Provinces up here has not traditionally been under heavy Pakistani control by the state. The way they've controlled is by allowing the local tribes to have most of their own sway. Well... This offends, I mean, Pakistan considers itself a sovereign country. So imagine if some country was bombing Montana uh, because they argued that the Montana militia was doing something in Canada and uh, President Obama didn't do anything about it. Said that's okay to allow this foreign country to bomb a part of our country. It's not okay by most Pakistanis to allow foreign countries who say they're fighting in Afghanistan to be bombing in Pakistan. But the, the other side of that is if, you, if you're going to continue this war and you're going to try to kill those people, then you've got to send some other 
way or some other device in there to do it. And that's going to mean young kids in parachutes to go find them and shoot them or stab them. And a lot of those kids are going to die trying to do it. And so they're not going to want to do it. And probably the president's not going to want to send them. And colonels and generals are not going to want to send them either. Not like that. So they're going to want a viable plan uh, that's, that's a better way that doesn't sacrifice uh, too many American lives to try to do this. There's also a sense that you know, when you get your mind into the counterinsurgency warfare argument, the problem here, they think, is not military. It's political. The Taliban's beating us by getting people being, liking them more than they like our government. And uh, that's, you're not going to confront that by paratroopers. You're going to confront that by providing economic and social development schools. This is where Greg Mortensen really comes in. You're going to have to do it somehow by changing you know, their perception of what we're contributing to their well-being and make that seem much more positive to them than it currently does. Yeah. Do you think that by improving socioeconomic um, conditions in Afghanistan alone, say we put our soldiers more at a um, nation-builder focus, say we focus our troops more on improving the socioeconomic condition, would that be as dangerous or as volatile as sending in combat troops into the South? Or into the South of Afghanistan? Do you think that would be more effective in what you can have to do both. If we do social development and we do other kind of uh, economic development projects, the Taliban can blow them up. You're going to have to protect what you built because they want us to lose. And so they're not going to uh, let us get away easily with trying to win over the hearts and minds that easily. And I think the discussion within the military high command, and it's pretty engaged right now, uh, there are quite a few, maybe this is why the vice president is saying what he's saying, who feel that Occupiers are never popular. Occupiers, by definition, are, un, are unpopular force. And it's easy to rally local opposition to foreign occupation. And you can pretend you're popular. You can pretend you won these people over in Iraq, for example, these sons of Iraq, but you didn't. All you did was pay them. You rented them. You rented them for a little while as long as you were paying them. But they're not loyal to you one whit. And, you know, you're just kidding yourself if you think they like you. They understand where power and money come from, and they're not stupid. And so, of course, they're going to angle your resources and your support into what works for them. And maybe, you know, they'll tell you how much they love you and how much they like you and how much they're going to do for you. But you'd be a fool to believe any of that uh, because you're the occupier force. And anyone you put in power, by definition, is someone foreigners put in power. How much credibility can they have? That's one view. And they tend to say, you can't win this one. You really need to figure out a different strategy, let the Afghans do this somehow on their own. And then the counter view is, yes, you can. That you could become perceived as allies, where they actually see you as providing medical and economic and security, and they come to see you as their actual friends, and you're welcome in their country because you're actually protecting them. You're not just a kingmaker. But if you're just a kingmaker, you're just powerful, then it's not going to be having any legs. Yeah. Uh, is the Taliban actually as popular as some of the 
There's 30, let's say 30 million people in Afghanistan, 176 million in Pakistan. I don't know, right? There's some who like them and probably most who don't. Uh, we don't have good elections in either one of these countries that would give you a very good sense of that. Uh, we don't have a good election in Afghanistan now to tell. My, my guess is they would have a minority of support, but among Pushtuns, some people say they have a lot of support, not so much because they're religious uh, conservatives, but because they're advocating some sort of a Pushtun nationalism. The Taliban are also smart enough to ally themselves, particularly in Pakistan, with a class war. They're against rich landowners, most of whom are Punjabi. And so they've also been able to say, by you know, being Taliban, we're against these rich, fat cats who've been exploiting your labor and keeping you poor. And if you come over to our side, uh, you know, you'll be able to live you know, better. You'll get revenge on these guys and so on and so forth. And that works. Um, I don't really know. I mean, my guess is they have a hard core of support through a minority that's armed. I mean, the, the real sense in Afghanistan I get is that they're armed and they're more violent, as you were suggesting, and that therefore people are intimidated and they're scared of them. Uh, but whether they would love them and like them, because a lot of it's what's the alternative. We sent a team and a lead anthropologist from Rashan who spent much of the summer in Afghanistan. She's been going back and forth for 40 years now. She used to be chair of the Department of Anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania, but she then became head of our Near Eastern Languages and Cultures Department. And she and I were in England this summer at a meeting in Cambridge on Afghanistan with the um, ISAF, the International Force from Afghanistan, and they invited some of us academic types to talk to them about tribal structures and cultural issues in Afghanistan that the soldiers are facing as they interact with the population. And uh, Margaret Mills is her name, and she gave a fascinating discussion about, she went to villages all over Afghanistan, particularly in the south, uh, spent four months just talking to the people she'd been talking to for four decades, and then laid out, here are the grievances we're hearing. This is what's on people's minds. And the military leaders had said, we want to know about their cultural peculiarities and the things that we can't understand about how this male-dominated culture treats women and a whole bunch of other things that we, we did talk about some. But Margaret's view was, let me tell you about the three most important things I heard in every single village I went to that started every conversation and was the number one thing on people's minds. First, the central government in Kabul sucks. And it's putting out its people into our local villages, which is a violation of everything. This has been a decentralized system where the Kabul let us have our local controls, and they don't try to impose from Kabul a local governor here who's often of a diff different tribal group. They don't have a network here locally. And when they impose them here from, uh, from outside, not only do they not have a network, they create a new network through a corrupt system of patronage. So when you hear about how corrupt the current government is, that's what's going on. Local governor arrives, and now he's in charge of the place in there. He doesn't know very many people around there. He builds a system of patronage because so much of the controls coming out of Kabul. It's not used to it. He's displacing the local tribal leaders who rally people against him, of course, and trying to displace their business. A lot of it's in the narcotics area or some other places, uh, and they're not going to put up with this. So that's the number one concern. The second concern is that once these guys establish themselves from, the, from Kabul, in order to run a business, move things across roads, go through checkpoints, you've got to bribe everybody. And it's all going back to the local governors who were appointed, appointed by Kabul. And people hate this. They're also bringing in you know, a lack of security. 
these governors arrive, but they don't bring any force that actually protects people. And a lot of the socioeconomic plans that they're putting in place, like they're going to build a water aqueduct or they're going to build some other development thing, is just a nightmare and stupidity. They build a water facility that it destroys the traditional water uh, aquifer, and you know the Taliban then create propaganda to say this was an American plot to destroy your water supply when really it was just incompetence uh, to route this uh, new road right through the aquifer area. And the Taliban just stayed silent and let us make these incredible blunders, let these people from Kabul come in with development projects who they then could give to their friends and their corporations and their companies to come and do the concrete laying or their bulldozering or whatever. That's what they mean by corruption. They're passing government money into private hands to do all kinds of development activity that we're paying for which is often counterproductive, and the Taliban is able to use it against us in the sense that they, they explain to the people this wasn't just a stupid blunder, this was a malicious attempt to hurt you. Uh, and she said those three things, and then it got down to women's issues and safety of, and, and education and things like that. But her main point was uh, these aren't cultural. It isn't because the Afghans are some sort of peculiar cultural birds of a different type. These are things that most people would resist in the context of occupation. And the other thing that's going on there, and Greg Mortensen discusses it, I think, in detail in his book, there are very conservative factions within the Taliban uh, who have privileged position. They're men, of course. And they're not keen to give that up. Mm-hmm. Stop. It was it was formed to make sure the Pushtuns didn't secede okay. and create independent Pushtun land. So how do they get mixed up in all this? What, what is well, because they're religious conservatives, as are key players in Pakistan. And I don't. I want to be clear. Uh, I would fight the Taliban if I were an Afghan. Mm-hmm. This this is a a group that uh, most any Western liberal oriented government finds abhorrent. Uh, the way they treat women, the way they feel about education, the, uh, the, what they do with regard to economic issues. I mean, everything about them is uh, a political ideology I just detest. Uh, in terms of their threat to the United States, uh, the Taliban has not been the ones that were attacking the United States. That was al-Qaeda. And they gave safe haven to al-Qaeda. But the relationship between the senior Taliban leaders and al-Qaeda was never as close as you may Imagine, and it got made out in the Western press as we switched from one stereotype of good guys to now, you know, terrible, evil, bad guys, and then glued all the bad guys together as one thing. And so we made Taliban the same as um, Al-Qaeda. There were plenty of reasons to object to Taliban when we used to just say okay with them. They blew up these historic uh, monuments of the Buddhas in Afghanistan because many other Islamic fundamentalists don't want pre-Islamic memorials in their country. Same threat as in Egypt. And, you know, this kind of stuff I find just, I'd be against it. And I, those, not, those would not be the Afghans I would want to support. And a lot of what they're going to do to the people in Afghanistan is just awful. But we probably, and we, not probably, we did not go to war because of that. We went to war because they attacked New York City. And that was Al-Qaeda. I don't know, I mean, beyond that, I don't know what else to tell you, except that Taliban is closely tied to Al-Qaeda now, although we don't know how close. But I guess we can't 
No, they were, as I mentioned, the history created that. The, the Pakistanis were fighting the Soviet Union. Arab fighters came to help that cause. They established this network throughout the 1980s. The Pakistani Inner Services Director took advantage of that in the 90s to secure arms into Afghan conservatives among the Pashtuns who didn't really have Arab allies helping them. I mean, Arab allied fighters, who then later on became mostly al-Qaeda. Uh, but nevertheless, they, they did take military support and training and some fellow traveling from those groups. And then once they were in power, they allowed them to operate from within Afghanistan. I really don't know how good our intelligence is about how tight the linkages are between senior Taliban commanders and Osama bin Laden, for example. The time's gone by, remember. I mean, we've killed a lot of people since 2001. And my guess is a lot of what we're seeing as Taliban now are people closer to your age than mine. And so a lot of these kids were, what, how old were you in 2001? 15, 14? Yeah, or even younger? Uh, so, I mean, it's a new group that's coming up. And I don't know whether they're tied to al-Qaeda more closely than their fathers were or not. I mean, I'm not a specialist on al-Qaeda per se. Yeah? What's, like, the fundamental difference between, like, the Christians, the the Punjabis, what's, like, what separates them as, like, like, what separates them? What separates the Spanish from the Germans and the French from the Russians? Language, one thing. Uh, a sense of ethnic cultural heritage that's different. Dress. Um, they mostly intermarry with each other. They are mostly sharing religion. Most of them are Sunni Muslims, but not all. About 15 to 20% in Afghanistan uh, are, are uh, Shia, the other main sect. Think Catholics and Protestants, if you want, or more likely Orthodox and Catholics. Um, people can find lots of things. To, oh, you read Dr. Seuss, right? People with stars and no stars and three stars. I mean, people can find lots of things to differentiate themselves on. These groups tend to differentiate themselves on ethnicity. And what has been the purpose of Afghan, from Pakistan from the beginning was to unite them all around Islam and overcome those ethnic differences. And it's possible. We, don't, we have ethnic differences in the United States. You have ethnic differences in France. I mean, in um, yeah, France, in Canada. You have a huge French-speaking population in Canada. Uh, and from time to time, they want to secede. Um, but countries often don't allow these linguistic differences or religious differences to become cleavages on which you can separate the state and divide the country. But there are often political entrepreneurs who are playing to that, who want to divide the country for, you know, they want to lead one of these factions uh, into a new secessionist movement, and so they, they emphasize it. So you could imagine, you know, Baluch leaders wanting independent Baluchistan, and they could be president of it. I suspect most Baluch farmers and the like could care less. You know, they're, they're, they, they can see unity on Islam as easily as they can see division on Baluch versus um, something else. But they don't confuse themselves. I mean, you know, the sun's on here. I know I can't even see it. I don't know if you can. 
But these Sindhi, they know they're not Punjabi. And it's the same kind of networks that, you know, Irish Catholics in the United States know they're not Protestants. Now, it doesn't mean a whole lot politically, right? But I, I guess I'd make a wager that a lot of Irish Catholics vote Democrat in Massachusetts every time. And, you know, there are political allegiances that get formed over long periods of time between political parties and sort of groups who define themselves in certain ways and divine people who aren't part of that group. This has been particularly bad because there's violence associated from time to time. You know, Benedict Bhutto was assassinated. So when that happens, people in sin get angry, right? Their favorite political family, she comes back as prime minister, and people from the other ethnicity murder her. Um, that sort of reinforces the notion of, of ethnic difference. Yeah. So, like, America, we have like, tons of like different. Like, what prevents them from like seeing themselves as Pakistanis, whereas like, we see ourselves as Americans, we don't see ourselves as a pilot. Mm-hmm. So, it's a great question. I wish I knew. We have a couple projects on just this issue at uh, Mershon because it is the issue of our day. And it's not just in this part of the country, part of the world. You know, take a country like France, which you probably see as a highly united country. But one in four people in France now is either first or second generation immigrant. And most of that immigration has occurred since 1970. And France, like the United States, prides itself as a civic nation where uh, being French has nothing to do with your religion, your race, even the language you speak. It isn't supposed to be ethnic. It's supposed to be a bond of fraternity that's pledged around a political set of principles. And so anybody can be French, Algerians or Senegalese or somebody from wherever, Spain, Poland, can become French. But in reality, of course, there's a giant gap between what is the civic law legally who's French and who in their mind a lot of French think are really French, the real French. We're still, we're still wrestling with this in America. Right? There's some people who think real Americans look only like you and not like our current president. And, so, and they'll play that game that's, that, that uh, subliminal, what is he, a real American, you know, and as if Asians, or as if there was an ethnic prototype of what a real American looks like. And so we carry these around in, in how you get people to operate with what we'll call a civic definition of the nation that's not tied to any ethnic, religious, or linguistic markers is the challenge of our time, given the kind of migration we're going to see with globalization and that we're already seeing in Europe. And you're seeing states like, like Holland that have traditionally prided themselves on tolerance, uh, now, of course, being very anti-Islamic, and having a lot of violence uh, in their cities uh, over the issues of Islamic immigrants. And I think, you know, these countries... So even in, even in highly economically developed places, this is a big issue of our day of how you make people forget that and ally themselves as all together, you know, one e pluribus unum, from many one. It's easier to say than do. More? Okay. I just want to say hello. I'm from Super's Experience, and I just want to have you all join me in 
I'll be happy to hang around for a little.